Howdy, howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Ears Podcast, produced by Terrier TV. I am Frank Robb. That is Bill. That is Cindy. What's happening, guys? How goes it? Hi, uh, it proceeds. It does proceed, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, I am ridiculously excited about uh, today's podcast. This is uh-huh. um, we've been talking about this as since it, it came to fruition, and uh, I, I am yeah, I'm very, very excited. Thoughts? Am, am I only oh, yeah. excited? Okay. Oh no, right, no, so no. Just me. Yeah, this is a, yeah, this is pretty interesting. This is very, very interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's introduce our guest and let's jump do into it. it. Let's go right to it. So today on the show we have Mr. Adrian Shine from the Loch Ness Project. How you doing, Adrian? Doing very well, thank you. I'm sitting by the loch. It's gone dark for us now, of course. Uh, you're a little bit uh, behind us in in time. But uh, anyway, good to talk to you. Likewise, sir. Thank you again so much for being here. I know I keep saying that, but we're sincerely blessed with this opportunity to chat with you. I know personally, um, and I think I told you this in a quick conversation we had before, as a kid, uh, watching everything you guys were doing over there is, you know, pulling sonar, sonar across the, uh, the, the lock, um, looking at your past studies, admiring that, uh, that magnificent beard you have, uh, going through all the different things you had going on over there. It was one of the many things that drew me to the world of science and you know, made it even more interesting to me. So, I mean, it's, I'm sure there's many people that can say that about these types of situations and studies. But for me personally, it was it was a huge draw. So thank you for everything you've been doing for so long. Well, thank you, thank you very much. It's nice to have these things said. I can't deny I've had a great deal of fun over the years, and um, bringing a little bit of conventional science into what we were doing, I think actually did open windows for quite a lot of people. We had a lot of students working as volunteers, obviously attracted by the excitement of the possibilities there were in Loch Ness. But also, because of the work we were doing, it introduced them to the scientific method. We were doing as much work on plankton and fish and sediments as ever we were looking for something controversial. And uh, many of them went on to... uh, to become teachers in, in, of biology and um, other disciplines. Uh, some of them even went did PhDs. That's incredible. Yeah, it's got to be very humbling to know you. How, what a big part of that you had. It, it was it was a good way of working because it kept everything a little bit more level. You know, a little bit more reasonable, a bit more credible. Yes, sir. Than some of the some of the work, you know, some of the things that people were doing, some of the things that people were speculating about, it kind of grounded the thing a bit, and that made it sustainable. Okay. Uh, as an interesting subject, and of course, as time went on, and the stereotypes of the 1930s, you know, the 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 humpbacked sea serpent. And the, and the plesiosaur idea, these stereotypes uh, were eliminated uh, as the 60s and 70s drew on. And yet still people were reporting and insisting they were seeing unusual creatures in Loch Ness. 
and we thought we ought to fin finish the job. And uh, that's why uh, nowadays it's really a lateral thinking game as to what the lock could sustain conceivably. Um, a matter of, of uh, possibilities rather than probabilities, if you like. Makes complete sense. Where did you originally get your, your, your passion or what brought you to looking into all this in the very beginning? Okay, well, it started for me where it started for the first investigators of the subject. It started at sea. It was on the east coast of England when I was a, a little boy, nearly eight years old. And I saw my first sea serpent. At least that's what my father named what we were looking at. Uh, I found out the next day what it actually was. There were water birds flying along by the horizon, but it sparked an interest in me, which as a schoolboy, I then pursued by reading the books of the investigators at Loch Ness, people like Tim Dinsdale, Ted Holliday and others. Uh, I followed the subject, you know, through my teens and ultimately thought, well, I really ought to have a, have a go. This is fascinating. I was always encouraged to be a, little, a bit of a naturalist. Um, but there's no doubting that as a naturalist, one of the most exciting things we could imagine was, well, monsters. <laughs> yes, and that's what yes. drew me, I think. So it started at sea, just as it started at sea for uh, the first investigators of the subject, Rupert Gould, who had written a book in 1930 called The Case for the Sea Serpent, which an uncle of mine actually gave me a copy of in my teens. So that was another point at which I was inspired. Um, and he subsequently wrote a book on Loch Ness in 1934, just after the first year. We've had 91 years of this, remember, uh, suggesting that one of the sea serpents that he had advocated uh, had actually got into Loch Ness and, and probably might not get out again, and that's where it could be identified. And to some extent, he was right, because the multi-humped form of sea serpent, the very one that turned up off your coasts in New England uh, in 1817 and was seen by hundreds of people, uh, that is indeed what we discovered in Loch Ness to have been caused by ship's wakes, because Loch Ness is part of the Caledonian Canal. Vessels go through it, they make displacement wakes, which when viewed from the side in calm weather, uh, give rise to this remarkably solid train of, of apparently humps, but, but they're actually the waves caused by the wake itself. It's interesting and where people's minds go what, sometimes, isn't it? Well, we confirm, I think, there's a debate as to whether or not myths, you know, legends, dragons, that sort of thing, come from things which were truly in nature, or whether we imagine things in nature, that is, generated by ourselves, and then we look to nature for confirmation. So, 
the mythical serpents, which the Vikings were very keen on, maybe we found confirmation in those in the wakes left initially by large marine animals, uh, like whales, uh, and finally by powered vessels, because when your people were looking at sea serpents off the harbor of Gloucester, Massachusetts, steamships had just were just beginning to appear on the coasts there. And of course, steamships, powered vessels, make wakes on calm water, which are visible. Sailing ships don't, of course, because they're becalmed. They don't go anywhere. But powered vessels do, and they make these wakes, which in calm weather are visible, if you're looking at them from a lowdown and from the side. And that, I think, is had a lot to do with your New England sea serpent. But it also had everything to do with the uh, first stereotype, the multi-hump stereotypes that were turning up in Loch Ness. So we looked to nature to confirm the things that we, not so much the things that we imagine um, or want to be there, we see perhaps confirmation of the things that are supposed to be there. So we knew that sea serpents were supposed to have these sort of humpy backs. And there in Loch Ness, we saw humpy backs. Do you remember when it was for, for you that you went from, uh, you know, the possibility of believing there was a giant sea serpent in Loch Ness to the reality of it being boat wakes? It was about, well, it wasn't just boat wakes. There was another stereotype, too. Um, at sea, things progressed from sea serpents. About 1850, things changed because of fossils that had been found on the south coast of England, of plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs. Expectations, I think, in a way trying to become more rational, thought that perhaps the sea serpents that so many people were reporting were actually living plesiosaurs that had not become extinct. And that was the other stereotype which coexisted at Loch Ness with the idea of the multi-hump sea serpents. Well, ultimately, we found that these long-necked uh, creatures, which were reported on Loch Ness, uh, not so much as the, the humps, about 20% of these heads and necks, which of course were the exciting thing, again, were only seen in calm weather. And what sort of creatures might there be in Loch Ness with these flexible swan-like necks? Well, the answer, of course, one answer was swans, oh or in our case, magansas and cormorants. Wow, okay, so, that makes sense. So, yeah, so anatomically it did. Everything, the thing that was missing was scale, because people were, th was, were reporting these heads and necks to be about four or five feet high. 
which really is a lot more than the water bird. But then we found that our vision, our perception, judges size by a subconscious measurement of distance. And we measure distance very often by familiar objects within our field of view at the same distance as a, an unknown object, for example. If there's a boat at the same distance, we know how big the boat is broadly. To know the size of an object, we have to at least subconsciously know the distance. Now, on water, there is a texture when wave when when there are waves you can sort of judge distance to a point by the receding texture of the waves uh, like a carpet uh, stretching away from you but on calm water you can't and so there are no cues to your judgment of distance and when that is when that is lacking, you cannot judge the, dis the, the distance and therefore size of an unknown object. But you see, on Loch Ness, it wouldn't be an unknown object because everybody knows what's in Loch Ness. There's a monster in Loch Ness and it's got a long neck and looks like a plesiosaur. Well, so does a water bird. It's just smaller. But on calm water, it can look a lot bigger. And that's what we discovered. And so we moved on from that. And the question you asked was when we, when we realized that. It was about 1976, to be precise. <laughs> wow. When, when I began expeditions, well, I, I was continuing expeditions at Loch Mora, which is not Loch Ness. It is on the West Coast. And I was one of the underwater men of the 1970s. Uh, some interesting pictures had been uh, taken underwater at Loch Ness of a flipper. It looked very much like a flipper, and I believed it. I believed it was a flipper. At the same time, I was working at Loch Mora, which had the same monster tradition. Loch Ness is not unique. And you have your own lakes, Lake Champlain. In Canada, there's Lake Okanagan. But at Loch Mora, the difference was that the water was clear. And that was when I had my little underwater hide that I built. That was in 1970, the winter of 1973 and 4. And I accumulated, attracted a bit of a following of accomplices, if you like, <laughs> to help, help me work at Loch Mora. And we worked quietly until 75. And then the Loch Ness people began to know about us. And uh, I was given the support by the Member of Parliament, David James, and Sir Peter Scott, who was a very well-known naturalist in Britain. And um, the thing got a lot bigger. And the Loch Ness hands, if you like, the people who were working at Loch Ness, all came to Loch Mora instead. We'd found that the underwater pictures 
that had been taken in the early 70s, um, two, two sets, the flipper picture of 72, which impressed me at the time, and then some much less impressive pictures taken in 1975, uh, we realized that they were the bottom of the lock. And the flipper picture, I'm afraid, it was faked. Oh, wow. It, it was, an outline was drawn around it. I mean, it was just a silt storm. The camera was dragging in the bottom. It, it, we, we know all that now. And, so, and we knew it then. We found out in 76 that that was the case. I, I was a bit slow to believe that the flipper picture was fake because I didn't think investigators would do that. But I'm afraid they did. And um, that's when my skepticism began, but where we realized that there might be something more valuable in continuing to investigate Loch Ness. In a way, it was a kind it's the way the cachet of Loch Ness, the public cachet and interest in Loch Ness, allowed us to do some general science um, to the extent that we would not have got support in any other way. So I have to admit to that. It all began, I think, when I was sitting in my little submersible looking out of, out of the portholes under Loch Mora for something big um, to swim over the top. It never did. But a lot of, of fish swam by, and I could even see the plankton uh, through these windows. And that diversified my whole interest to far beyond monsters. And today, we, we look, I suppose, at the subject in a very different way. We see it as a vehicle, a vehicle for maintaining interest in the natural world, but also a way, sort of a mirror to ourselves the way we believe in things, the way we see things, it, it could have a value in that respect. We found out a lot about the limitations of human perception, but also we are beginning to wonder about the mechanisms whereby we want to believe in Loch Ness monsters. I mean, we've been looking for them unsuccessfully for 91 years. That's so very, very, very it? interesting. Well, it, it, it is, really, uh, because, you see, in a way, it's an accessible idea. Oh, I also continued with all the sonar that you remember, because in the final days of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, which was working at Loch Ness before my time, they had got some interesting sonar contacts. And so... I worked with Sonar to clear up the remaining issues because we came back to Loch Ness, you see, in the 80s. You probably remember the 70s. Yeah, that was a little, little bit before my time. I remember yeah, the 70s. <laughs> yeah, Bill does. It was before my time. Okay, maybe it was the 80s. But I did, yes, I did a lot of Sonar work. And it was, we did always accept they weren't necessarily monsters, but we 
we knew we we thought we had a duty to find out what they were and um, to some extent uh, I think we overestimated the strength of some of the contacts we are now aware of all the issues that can creep in with the, the locked steep underwater side walls uh, which can produce some peculiar echoes and there are even bits of junk and debris that have been jettisoned by vessels moving through the canal which can cause sonar contacts so that was a, a, a sort of an aside with what was going on but now we see the the final denouement if you like was when we assisted in an expedition uh, a survey a, an environmental dna survey uh, just a couple of years ago we were just wondering about this by, okay well it was led by professor gamel from the university university of otago in new zealand and we sampled Loch Ness end to end, side to side, and top to bottom. The great thing about environmental DNA is the fieldwork is really just a question of collecting water because the cells of aquatic creatures uh, protect the DNA for about a week, um, sometimes more, in water. Freshwater um, is bad for DNA. The cells, shed cells from skin, fecal matter, mucus, they stay there. And all we've got to do is collect the water. And then the clever bit happens in the laboratories, of which there were a number around the world, which Professor Gemmel had um, accumulated uh, into a collaboration. And of course, there was no reptile DNA. Well, we never expected that there was. But there wasn't. Uh, there were no aquatic. There was no aquatic mammal DNA, uh, and he also addressed the issue of what I call the modern fish theories. Because starting in '76, we did come up, and I was partly guilty of it, of thinking of three, the big three, we call them fish theories and the first one which is my favorite one was that perhaps sturgeon had something to do with it what people were seeing maybe starting the tradition uh, there was no sturgeon dna interesting the next theory was the european catfish which is well it's a lot bigger than the ones you've got, actually, potentially. And they live an awfully long time. And this caused uh, this, those factors. Uh, we used by a chap called Dick Rayner to suggest that one or two huge European catfish might have survived from introductions by man, by Victorians, during the 19th century. They're very long-lived. Uh, they wouldn't breed because they need a water temperature of about 20 degrees to breed. And we don't get that in Loch Ness very often. They're not indigenous to Britain, but they've been introduced to various places. 
And so uh, some of the people seeing things describe them as very ugly. Ugly. Well, you know, the European catfish is pretty ugly. Um, so it fits the bill in that respect. And the final theory was the gigantic eel. The idea of uh, perhaps ordinary eels coming, coming into Loch Ness and instead of leaving to go to sea, to the Sargasso Sea to spawn and, and, and die, some eels might just get bigger and bigger and bigger in Loch Ness. And of course, this harks back in a way to those humpy stereotypes I was talking about, the sea serpent monsters. Right. Well, there wasn't, um, there wasn't any catfish DNA, there wasn't any sturgeon DNA. And so the theory that uh, the media rather liked was this idea of the gigantic eels, because things have moved on, you see, in terms of uh, the way the media interact with the public. Once upon a time, they said, oh, dear me, Loch Ness Monster's just a big eel. Uh, whereas, in fact, now, of course, they say, oh, the Loch Ness Monster could be a, a big eel, and that would be a big deal. Because, real, you know, expectations are more realistic now. Well, of course, when you think about it, um, what we discovered, what we concluded in the end was that the DNA survey could not confirm or refute these big three fish theories because my Atlantic sturgeon wouldn't be in the loch more than once in a blue moon. Um, it is a migratory fish. It would enter fresh water just occasionally, they do in Britain. Uh, they are navigationally challenged, if you like. They blunder up a river and, of course, try and leave again without finding a spawning partner. And so <laughs> the DNA survey would be very lucky to find one of my sturgeon in the lock at all. And as for the catfish, well, if there are only one or two of them around, there might not have been enough DNA anyway. Uh, we didn't find any DNA from otters or cormorants, and we know they visit the loch, and that would be because of the low amount. And as for the big eel theory, well, of course, there was lots and lots of eel DNA. But, of course, it was exactly the same DNA for all the eels, because oh. the theory is that it's an ordinary anguilla anguilla that might get bigger. And so that's the lateral nature of the thinking game that is now being played. And long may that continue. <laughs> yes, sir. No <laughs> doubt about it. So it, it leads me to a couple of, a couple of more questions here. When you hear, you know, I know you're, we're, we're going to get to a couple other things here in a second, but when you hear about other myths uh, as far as things like that people claim to have seen globally, like uh, yetis and things of that nature. What, what, you know, from the perspective of you working in a situation like this forever, what kind of mindset do you have on things of that nature when you hear about them? All right. Well, they are related, uh, I think. But I think it's important that I make the point that having studied sea serpents, I'm completing a book on them, and Loch Ness Monsters. I say, by all means, tell us about your book, too. 
<laughs> okay. Well, my conclusion is that witnesses are not only not only honest. Few people denied that you know would suggest otherwise. But that they are not seeing things that they necessarily want to see. They're seeing things, as I said earlier, they are supposed to see. But actually, they are reporting what they are seeing. I believe that my own research vindicates the eyewitnesses. There is a difference between perceiving something and interpreting it. And so, if somebody says to me that they have seen this succession of humps on the loch, I'll certainly believe it because I know that you can see a succession of humps on the loch. If they say it was definitely an animal, I would say, well, that is an interpretation. It is completely different to the perception. It is, if you like, simply an opinion. At Lochmora, I saw a monster on my first visit, rowing a boat in the dusk. Uh, that's what I was doing. It turned out to be a rock about four inches high. So I couldn't believe my own eyes. I don't believe the interpretation of other people's eyes either. But I've come to recognize that they are reporting broadly what they are seeing. What were your thoughts originally whenever you saw the when you saw that creature that you what you thought was a creature that ended up being a rock when you were when you were paddling up to that what what were what was on your mind? Well, I thought, oh, I've achieved what I've come to do. <laughs> I better not I better not move in the direction of the other way right now. <laughs> and I did I did actually row towards the object. There you go. I have and, the same um, problem with large large animals in the water, so I, I get that one a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yes, you have to make that decision, don't you? <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, you have to make a conscious choice there at some point. You're either all in or you're all out. You either go yes, you either go in or you don't. Well, I was a young man, and young men are are immortal. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so, a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So uh, so in we went, and um, so I've made the point that I think that the witnesses are reporting what they are seeing. I won't necessarily endorse what they are interpreting in terms of what they are seeing. And so in terms of the Yeti or your Bigfoot, yep. uh, I think people are sincerely reporting, most, most of them, what they're seeing. I know there are a lot of people trudging about with big feet. <laughs> yes, sir, and that's I'm true sure, too. I'm sure, that is, I, I'm sure that is great fun. <laughs> and British Columbia has got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, sir, it really not only does. Have, not only is it the, the beginning of your Bigfoot tradition, but just off the coast, you have your Cadborosaurus. You've heard of that? Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one particularly. No, sir. No, uh, it's, it's your version of the sea. It's a Canadian version of the sea serpent. Really? Uh, offering at Van, 
off Vancouver Island. Yeah. Yes, it comes down into your waters too. I mean, the border isn't far away, is it? No, yeah, it's not that far away in the <laughs> around, grand scheme of things. Around, around Seattle. Uh, yeah. So you were telling Seems us about your there. your book. Tell us about the tell us about your book and what that's all about. Oh, the Sea Serpent book. Well, well, I'm trying to complete complete it. Um, it may be published in in Scotland within about six months. Awesome. I would say. But I trace the sea serpent tradition from what I believe are Viking roots through um, the later Scandinavian um, Norwegian sea serpent, which uh, a bishop at the time was collecting reports about, the very credible ones. The identical sea serpent that appeared off the coast of Massachusetts in 1817 and in other, you know, years succeeding that, known as the Great New England Sea Serpent. And uh, some reports made by the French Navy of some odd creatures off Vietnam. Uh, some reports from the Atlantic and indeed from around Vancouver Island. So, in other words, the sorts of uh, things that are seen and been attributed first to sea serpents, and then I would maintain after 1850, sea monsters um, in all these places. And I advance some explanations in terms of the known marine megafauna which in the 19th century, which was the sort of heyday of these reports, the whaling uh, had diminished and depleted the whale population of the globe enormously. Uh, had, and also sealing, uh, you know, the, the elephant seals and the sea lions of California. Uh, they were much depleted. And so now we see the recovery of those species and we can begin to see in their behavior, sometimes unrecognized behavior previously, um, justification for some of these bizarre experiences. And so really there's a conservation message behind it. As we understand the current creatures of the sea, and their behavior, we may see less monsters, but our appreciation of those creatures might be some warranty for their future. That's a, a great that's a great message by by all means. Um, that's it's great that you're able to do so much through something that started as a mo a monster in a, in an area of the world, and you've able you've been able to turn it into uh, huge conservation impacts. Truly, it's 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 incredible. Well, I think I think it is part of the story. Yes. Yeah, no doubt about it. It is a conservation. It is a conservation message. We we reduce the populations of these creatures to the extent that the contemporary sailors of that day would very seldom encounter them. That's true. Yeah, that's true. We picture the we picture them being more of these creatures around in the past. That's not true.
<laughs> we're only just getting them back. And, uh, and finally, I'd have to say, I hope we leave enough resources in the ocean for them to increase their numbers. Yes. One thing, it's one thing not, not harpooning whales, but, you know, we shouldn't be chopping up sand lances for fertilizer either. You have a very valid point. Yes, sir. There's no doubt about it. So over the years, you've had, you ha you've had to have met so many people doing this work, and you must have some very interesting stories about people you met and stories they had or things that, that happened along the way. Can you maybe give us a, share with us an interesting story someone shared with you about uh, a Loch Ness Monster <laughs> experience? Uh, well, I suppose, oh dear me, it put me on the spot there. <laughs> um, yeah, by all means, there's nothing I you do, have to I share, do, but I'm sure you I have some interesting ones. I, there, was, there was one uh, great expeditioner, we call him, who turned up on many of our expeditions. He was called Ivan Newby, and he had a an amphibious car. And uh, he used to drive it into the loch and around and the... I think he was trying to impress one of uh, our young young ladies <laughs> and took her out in this car and out he went. And then we were aware that he was driving back. <laughs> He'd left the plug out. Oh, <laughs> the, no. The thing was sinking. And we had to haul it out. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, quite funny. He, he then attempted to sell the car uh, by demonstrating it in a river and again he forgot to put the plug in <laughs> i don't think he sold it i don't think he sold it on that occasion but uh, oh, we, we did attract a number of eccentrics yeah. <laughs> and i'm probably one of them uh, the, most of us in the animal world have some part of it buddy there's, there's no doubt in it. Usually, most of us in the conservation world and in the, in the wildlife world have some portion of that to keep everything sane in our own heads. I think. Well, yes, and it, <laughs> it has been fun, and I'm sure you've had your share of it too. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's, uh, and like I said, I, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you the impact. You know, this. So my, my side of the crocodilian side has been something that our whole family's been doing forever, um, but this this story that you've been part of over there and really I mean the the Loch Ness project in general where you've went with it from here uh from from that point has been something we have discussed and uh just been enamored with from the beginning and your scientific approach to it all is so it's uh it's just it it gives me a little bit of hope if that if that makes any sense it just it it brings uh brings light to a, a very interesting subject and it's just it's neat to see it from that side from someone with a with a, a science approach as my uncle would say someone who's waxing scientific well the way i feel about it is that the conventional science that we've done has shed unexpected light into the argument itself but that it's not reduced the fun of it People think that if you introduce a bit of rationality and science, it might reduce the fun. No, it doesn't, because it makes you think. So we've, you know, we don't look. We're not keeping looking. We've started thinking, and that's just as much fun. Yes, sir. There's no no doubt about it whatsoever. 
Mr. Shine, we thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and, and chatting with us. I know it's late over there. Um, it, it means the world to me and Bill and Cindy that you took a time to, to uh, allow us to chat with you and ask you some questions and have you share your experiences and your, truly your life's passion. It's, uh, it's been an absolute honor, sir. You're most welcome, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right, sir. Hope to catch up with you again sometime soon. Thank you so much for your time. Goodbye. Bye. Well, that was an absolute blast. That what a sweetheart that guy is. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, anytime you can talk to somebody that has that kind of experience and that kind of, I mean, truly has done that kind of a deep dive into a subject. I mean, you play on words or not, the guy truly has. Oh, yeah. oh. It's been his life since he was a kid. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. real. You can, you can just uh, gleam so much cool information out of somebody like that. That's well, a guy I could chat with for uh, an entire week straight and not, not ever get bored by the any means. The thing that struck me was that, you know, how he covered so many bases, you know. Yeah. They, they looked at it from all these different angles, and they, they went about trying to prove that it was, you know, or, or end up disproving it. Or That's what was interesting. Yeah, it's exa- they didn't try to disprove it. They let the science mm-hmm. disprove right. it. You know, right. it I sh- love it because I've always been what I used to think was a weird a weird person because I can believe very fantastical things and wonder about things like, you know, Loch Ness monsters and Bigfoot and, but I'm also a science minded person. So I used to think those things were mutually exclusive and I used to have trouble rationalizing to people. Well, how can you be a science person, but you believe X, Y. And I think he really did a great job of bringing that home Mm -hmm. that they go hand in hand. They do. Oh, science yeah. isn't about starting with one belief and proving or disproving. It's about following the science. It's if, a- if some kind of dinosaur showed up in Loch Ness tomorrow, he'd be the first person to be all about it. Yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's uh, such a unique perspective on uh, on life, truly. Uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that could get a lot out of that. Yeah, yep. I, Man, I, I hope you are getting a lot of that because that was that was something else. That was a very that was a very special opportunity to chat with that man. Man, I got a, I got a little teary eyed there in the, man, the beginning, just listening to him talk about it and kind of break it down. It was that's it's right? emotional. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a wow. I think we should end the podcast before I ruin it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there we go. Thank you all for tuning to the Ears Podcast this afternoon. You can find Ears on all platforms by searching Ears ears on all platforms by searching ears because that kind of makes sense e-e-a-r-s-s ears or ears.org alligator rob with two bs.com we're there everywhere leave us a comment uh tell us if you enjoyed the show maybe somebody you might have in mind you want us to talk to sometime give us a yell let us know thank you to edna wilson with celebrate remax aerospace and pat fisher nissan for your sponsorship of our program we'll catch you all next week Bye bye